When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education and the president of Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm delighted to be here today with Gordon Gee, the president of West Virginia University and the author most recently of Land-Grant Universities for the Future, Higher Education for the Public Good, which was published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, Gordon, it's great to have you with us today. I, you know, uh, David, I'm honored to be here. Truly so. Would you start by telling us a little bit about your own background? Where where did you grow up and go to school? I I grew up in a very small town uh, on the Utah-Colorado border called Vernal, Utah. It was a town of about 2,000 people, but it was the largest city between Salt Lake City and Denver, which is the same which is the same distances between Charlotte, North Carolina, and Boston, Massachusetts. So I really grew up in rural America. I grew up in a consolidated high school um, uh, because we had the Uinta Ore Indian Reservation uh, as part of our our uh, high school uh, setting. And so, uh, you know, so I grew up in a very multidimensional mm-hmm. uh, society. I grew up as a very devout Mormon and remained so, uh, obviously, in that part of the world. Um, and then, uh, you know, then I went to the University of Utah as an undergraduate, uh, went to Columbia University as, uh, as uh, a law student, and then stayed on and got my doctorate at, uh, uh, I, in fact, I did it at the same time, uh, my law degree at both, uh, 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 both my law degree and my doctorate at, uh, at Columbia and at uh, Teachers College Columbia, and then um, then uh, worked for a couple of big law firms for a short period of time. Um, clerk for the chief judge of the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, Federal Circuit Court. Uh, became the assistant dean at the University of Utah College of Law and then went to work for the chief justice of the United States for several years and then um, went back to BYU, the, 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 uh, the large Mormon university, um, where I became associate dean of the law school and then went to West Virginia as as dean of the law school, and I was there for about 18 months as dean, and then I became president of the university in 1980, um, president of University of Colorado in 1985, uh, 
uh, president of the Ohio State University in 1990, um, then um, president of Brown University in 97, Vanderbilt in 2000, and then Ohio State for another seven years, 2007 to 2014. I actually retired, and, and then all of a sudden here I am again, <laughs> um, a second time at uh, West Virginia, you know. So, it, And I've been here another seven years. It's a really remarkable career trajectory, and I was curious when you made the decision, which I think was a little unusual to do an educational doctorate at at Teachers College along with the law degree, did you already have in your mind that you would want to go into higher education leadership? Well, you know, I'd been president of my undergraduate student government. I'd always been interested in uh, in higher education as a as a field. Um, and someone had told me that, gee, you know, you might want to think about uh, going into higher education. And, of course, Columbia has such a distinguished uh, uh, teacher's college uh, education program that I just decided that. And I went over and walked over and said, well, gee, could I do both of them at the same time? I didn't want to do three years and then four yep. years. And so I did I did both of them. Uh, you know, I did my my both my uh both my degrees in about four and a half years, uh, all told. So, so they worked it out uh, very nice. I was really the first one who did it that way at Columbia, and they and they were very accommodating for that. I'm immensely grateful. Yeah, and and as you shared, you uh, in that kind of rapid trajectory, uh, you had a stop at the U.S. Supreme Court. Can yes. you share a little bit about what that was like working for the Chief Justice, and well, and are there things you took from that that you've been able to use in in, in your career as a university president? Well, I think that uh, I think that whenever you're in the in one of the ultimate centers of power, it's it's uh, it's very eye opening. It's also very intimidating. And uh, I worked for Warren Burger, who was a wonderful man. Um, Austere in public appearance, but quite warm in 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 other in other ways. And uh, I had a, I had a unique opportunity. I worked both. Uh, I, I worked for him first as the first judicial fellow. The the judiciary um, decided that they would have comp, uh, create a, a complementary program to the White House fellowships, and so I was the first one. So for for a year, I just spent a, a unique. I had a unique opportunity. I traveled with him all over the world. Um, uh, working on the administrative side, uh, side of the of the courts, as not a lot of people know, but the Chief Justice of the United States is also the uh, Chief Administrative Officer of the federal court system. He is he's the the greatest among equals at the court, but his real responsibility is running that federal court system. And so, I did that for a year, and then a Watergate came along, so I shifted over to the legal side, and uh, you know, so it was it was unique. But I, I, you know, I tell everyone that uh, I think that probably the thing that I learned the most is the fact that the justices are like anyone else. They read the. I always I always joked about the fact that the first thing they read every morning was the New York Times. You know, so so the, so they are uh, they are fully cognizant of the uh, political, social, cultural issues that are happening in this country, and I think that. That has been evidenced by how the law has flowed and um, and how it continues to morph over time. Um, when you became a university president for the first time at West Virginia, uh, mm-hmm. you, you were only 36 years old, one of the youngest at any major uh, research university. Can, can you say, um, was, was that something, had you set out to become a university president, you'd, you'd been there as a law school dean, 
what, had you looked at other opportunities or was this something that came about when the opening presented itself there at West Virginia? It was totally by accident. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've been an accidental president at West Virginia twice. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, I, I was just getting firmly ensconced at the law school. And uh, I, I tell everyone, I think that, that because West Virginia is a very small state, and there are uh, and, and, and only one law school, and graduates of the law school tend to have significant positions in the state. I think I, 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 I knew, uh, you know, I, I knew everyone without having offended anyone. Uh, so I've been here just long enough to have that happen. So I think when they were hunting for a president, they, they started looking at me, and I literally woke up one morning and uh, I discovered that I was president of the university. I mean, my name was in the front page of the university. This guy's going to be president. I said, well, I can't even spell president, let alone university. And so uh, it was very unusual. But, uh, um, you know, I often think about the fact that I probably came at it too young. But on the other hand, I would never give up uh, these 41 years that I've had um, because the experiences have been extraordinary. And and it's been a real gift to me. And and returning to West Virginia, returning where I started, uh, if nothing else, I've had a chance to correct all the mistakes I made the first time around. You know? and, and I'm curious, given that, as you say, it came out in, in a quite quick and unplanned way, how did you go about that first presidency um, in terms of formulating your plan? Obviously, you were a lot younger than I assume the majority yeah. of the faculty and the folks reporting to you. So, so how did you go about sort of figuring out that that first pre- approach to the presidency? Well, you know, the truth of the matter is, David. I think that uh, I think that there's no playbook for being university president. Uh, I think every place has its own values, its own culture. Um, fortunately, I've been here just long enough to sort of understand the rhythm of this institution. And some of the issues that are confronting were confronting the state at that time, and the role of university, you know, the the, the large university in a small state, uh, and the land grant institution, the major research university, all of that uh, gave us a very special calling. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is uh, you, you know, I, I I tell this funny story about the fact that I was about four four or five months into my uh, residency, and I was just not doing very well. I mean, you know the Faculty were ready to hang me. I, I wear a bow tie, and uh, and the uh, you know the students were not very happy. And uh, these two old guys, uh, I thought they were old. They were probably about forty. <laughs> came, they came in to see me, and uh, one was the dean of the libraries, the other was the chair of the department of English. So you can kind of imagine what their what their stripe was. And they said, "Well, Mr. President, we're here to tell you you're not doing very well." And I said, oh, "Well, thanks." You know what 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 uh, what do you think uh, that I need to do? And they said, well, you, you need to look and act and talk like the university president because, you know, I was young. Uh, I went out late at night to visit the students. Uh, you know, I wore bow ties and khaki pants, and uh, I was probably, uh, and they said, well, you just need to act more dignified. And I, and I thought about that. I said, the only university president I knew was, uh, was Jim Fletcher, who was the president of the University of Utah, and so I tall, gray-haired, distinguished fellow, and so I thought, I need to act more like that, so I, so I uh, started wearing long, uh, long ties and dark suits and tried to act a little bit more uh, distinguished, and two things happened. One is the fact that I was still not doing very well, and secondly, while I was miserable, 
So I just woke up one day and said, you know, I think that the biggest lesson that I can learn is to just be myself. And uh, I point out, 41 years later, I'm still the university president, and those guys are dead. Yeah. You know, so so uh, one of the lessons that I always tell you, I've, I've had 30 ACE fellows over a uh, span of four years, and that's one of the things that I always tell them is the fact that I think that the greatest lesson you can learn is to, is to be yourself. I, I think in academic life, David, all too often, we try to get defined by the way that other people want to define us rather than playing to our unique characteristics. Um, each of us have great strengths. Each of us have remarkable weaknesses. University presidents are no different from anyone else. And, and one of the things that I really think about as I've met my colleagues over the years is the fact that so many of them start believing the clippings from the alumni uh, uh, magazine or whatever that they really are, um, that they really have been given a special dispensation by uh, uh, by God, and that's just not true. And it, uh, it it's unfortunate. Um, and so I think that that, I think that humility is a very important characteristic of the presidency. And, and I totally agree with you about folks needing to find their, their own individual style and approach. But I, I know for myself, I, I as, a, as a new college president, I found it extremely useful to, to speak to some folks who'd been in the role in, in different places, not not to, you know, get their playbook, but just to, to have mentors and people you could bounce ideas off where you might not be able to talk internally. Did you have any folks that you were able to consult and guide on, along the way? Abs- absolutely. I went, I, I made the trek out to see Clark Kerr, the grand old man. And he and I became fast friends over time. And um, it was just, uh, 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 and and so he gave me a lot of uh, nurturing. Uh, I had uh, uh, Al Bakker come in, who was who had been the uh, head of the State University of New York, uh, Peter McGraw, for whom I still maintain a deep personal um, friendship. I had them come in and kick my tires and tell me a little bit about what they saw, what they were learning. Um, and uh, so, uh, so I was, I was wise enough to call on some of the um, senior leaders in the country who had had experience to at least give me some idea about uh, some of the questions I should be asking, some of the things that I ought to be doing. Um, and that was very helpful. And, and you mentioned that, you know, those first few months were a little rocky. How did yeah. you go about sort of overcoming that? And, and then what what did, what were the sort of the hallmarks of that first presidency for you at West well, Virginia? I think that, uh, I, I think that first of all, I, I started getting my feet firmly implanted in the ground. Um, secondly, of all, I spent a lot of time out talking with people rather than hiding out in my office. The third thing is the fact that I just decided that, as a land-grant university, I was going to become fiercely land-grant where I've been for the past 40-plus years, you know, and get out and carry the message of the University of the State using our extension faculty and others. And so I, so I started, getting my, started getting my legs. Um, and then, you know, we, we started identifying some, some significant uh, opportunities. Uh, you know, at that time we had uh, Senator Byrd, and uh, I convinced him to start sending money to state to the university as you know good ally to have he did that he did that in 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 large measure and so we we were able to uh, really develop some 
strong programs in medicine and chemistry uh, in, in, in several of the sciences, and then um, and decided that uh, I'd really uh, take a look at, uh, re at, at creating a very significant um, academic medical center that would support the state, and so we did that. So yeah, I mean, there, there were some successes. There were a lot of failures, and, uh, which I will not mention on the podcast, but I would say that uh, I think that uh, it was a, a wonderful learning experience for me. And um, one of the things that I think has been a hallmark of you know your style and how you've approached it is very much to get out there, getting to know the students, the faculties, the stakeholders. And yet I read in one of the things that where you were interviewed recently, you said your advice to new presidents was, was not to spend a lot of time planning, but but to to get quickly into their agenda. Yeah. And so I'm I'm curious, particularly if it's a new president who doesn't know an institution well, how how you think about those two things together? Because because well, they, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I interrupt you. Sorry, David, about that. No, no. I, because that's a great question. Um, I am I, I do not believe in strategic planning. I'll just say that right now. I've been through so many strategic plans, and you know we can all read them. You can substitute uh, Rutgers for Ohio State for the University of California. They all read the same. We're all going to be great. Um, uh, I believe in strategic action, and the reason I say that, I think the world is really accelerating. And I think any institution that spends time planning is going to be an institution that will not uh, achieve much because they have, they have uh, not really put their put their shoulder to the wheel, so to speak. Um, and and, um, and so that's number one. I, I, I really think you need to take advantage of the uniqueness of your institution and and identify where you are. Second of all, I think the university president needs to lead and not and not follow. I think you need to listen and lead, but not but not wait around. If you spend six months kicking the tires, the, the institution may uh, have... Uh, Fallen off, you know, have fallen into the ditch, and uh, hard to pull it out. And and uh, I think that, that is also important. So, so I I think that the notion of getting out listening, and at the same time doing, are really parallel and absolutely integrated processes that you need to make sure that you undertake. Um, you know, it's it, it's easy to say I don't know the answer, but you don't. It's easy to say that I'm going to think about things, but you don't. But, but, but by, the, by the time you think about it, a lot of opportunities may have passed. The other thing I believe very strongly in, and I've, I've tried to follow this rule over the past two or three presidencies, uh, is that I believe that you need to bring in your own team early um, for two reasons. One, I just think you need to bring in people that... Uh, are sort of compatible with your thinking, not who agree or disagree with you, but but who fill your gaps and really understand uh, who you are and understand what the institution is about. And the second thing is that if you make those changes early on, then you haven't fired anyone. You've brought in your own team. The longer you go, then you develop a momentum that, gee, you know, you're replacing people, you're firing, you've got a lot of blood on your hands. I used to be, uh, when I was young, uh, I thought it was really very macho to, uh, you know, remove, remove people and kind of have a 
kind of have a public dance about that. Now I never want to have my fingerprints on anything. I just want, I just want things to get done. And so you mentioned that you've done that in the last two or three. So in your earlier presidencies, did you more keep the team you inherited and then make gradual changes as opposed to kind yeah. of bringing in a team? At the start? Yeah, I think, I think that uh, at West Virginia I did because I knew the people. I actually made changes early on. I think that uh, at Colorado and Ohio State I did uh, first time around, but uh, I did uh, keep more of the people intact than I probably should have done. Um, uh, but I learned from that experience also, and I did make the changes. But, you, you know, sometimes it took a little bit longer, and sometimes um, some of the results were not what I would have liked in terms of speed, agility, action, uh, things that I think, the things that I thought were important for the university to be accomplished. One of the other things that you've given as advice for folks is, and I think it goes with your principle of action over planning, is to really keep it simple. You, you mentioned keeping everything you needed to run the university on a on a card in your pocket, and so yeah. I'm curious what what's on the card, and yeah, and in a uh, place as big and complex <laughs> as a West Virginia or Ohio State, yeah. how do you boil it down to that? Yeah, I'll, I'll grab my card. Uh, let me Excellent. let me give me one sec, okay? Sure. So, David, uh, uh, you've done some reading. Yeah, I, I believe very, very strongly that it's important to uh, to keep everything very simple. And so I've, I've I've taken the view that if I can't run a large, complex university uh, on a card this size, then I have way overcomplicated it. So um, what I have on this is I have my presidential leader, leadership goals and four or five things that I identified the very first day. I actually put these out. The first day that I was here, um, uh, these are these are West Virginia goals. Uh, I'll just give you a couple. You know, Forge One, West Virginia University. I felt we were way too siloed. I feel all universities are way too siloed. Uh, put our students first. Something that a lot of big universities don't do. Um, you know, focus on our faculty and staff success. Uh, make certain that we have a very rigorous research agenda. Uh, because we're a land grant university, commit to our communities and simplify the university system and structure. Just make the damn place simple. Get rid of all the bureaucracy. Get rid of all of the um, the layers of, uh, of, of questions uh, that, that people are asked. And then, and then the second thing I said is how do we accomplish these strategic goals? Well, you know, change our mindset, stretch our targets, reward restructuring and change. And on the other side, these are uh, these are my sort of my thoughts to myself. What must we do to be successful leaders? And if we do that, what will West Virginia become? And you know, and I look at that card uh, almost every day, and I and I try to live according to my own admonition. Uh, and it's worked for me. It's 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 worked by and large for me because I do I do try to keep things very very simple. For example, when I came here, um, I just didn't. I, I, I didn't add a lot of people. I didn't, uh, I kept, uh, you know, it's a very large institution, but we have a very small, a very small administrative structure, one of the smallest I've seen. It, you know, our administrative structure is actually smaller than it was at Brown, which is 6,500 students. And I kept that that way because I wanted to, I wanted to really put the time, energy, and resources into uh, the college's program, the dynamics of the institution in the state. 
so you're you're known for your your tireless work ethic and and careful planning for things. I, I'm curious, how, how do you look at dividing your time in in the yeah. sort of the big buckets that you spend, and and how have you been able to keep that work ethic up for for over forty years in in these presidency roles? Well, I think I think you and I do this work because we love what we're doing, and that and that is the motivation. Um, you know, if if I felt that I had a job, I would uh, probably mail it in more or less. But uh, I feel that being a university president, being a college president, is a is a ministry, is a is a uh, is a calling. And I think that by treating it that way, then you remain energized. Secondly, of all, young people keep you energetic, just simply by 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 uh, rubbing shoulders with them and getting an opportunity to spend time learning from them and hearing from them. Uh, the third thing is that, um, is that uh, treat the university like a seminar. Every day, I, I, I actually sp- put aside a few hours every week to just wander around and, and, and I've read something about someone doing something very interesting. I just kind of pop in and say, tell me what you're doing and why are you doing it? I think that you have to keep your own curiosity up. If you get, if you, if you let the university become an administrative burden, <coughs> rather than um, thinking about it as a learning uh, as a learning opportunity, then I think you've lost that. <coughs> Excuse me, David. Um, so, so that that's both how uh, how how, uh, how I, I try to keep my energy up. The second thing is, you know, exercise every morning, get some sleep. You know, do do those kind of things that I think are important. In terms of time, you know, I've learned this over time. I've learned over a span of years. I actually have a system that I've developed. Um, um, it's now computerized, so that uh, so that any day my assistant can tell me you're spending fifty one percent of your time on external on external work. You're spending thirty three percent of your time on development. Ninety percent of your time on building questions about the Big Twelve Conference. You know, whatever, whatever. Whatever it is, uh, that way, uh, and I try to keep my time fairly structured so that I spend uh, half of my time on internal issues of the university and half of my time on external issues to the university. Once you start getting that out of whack, uh, I think um, either the external or the internal world suffers. And as university president, you have to be very Janus faced. You have to explain. You have to look to the external world, and you have to deal with it, particularly as a public university president. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got thirty plus thousand students and thirty, uh, you know, thirty thousand faculty and staff. I've got, I've got one hundred and fifty legislators, and I've got one point eight million West Virginians, all of whom know how to run the university better than I do, <laughs> and let me know about it. And so it's that kind of constant external communication. Plus, we need to raise money. I mean, you know. Our, our, our res- we have unlimited appetites and limited resources, but exter- but internally, if you're sem- if you're selling S E L L I N G, if you're selling an empty vessel, if you don't have things that people can take pride in, and people can feel good about, both as your faculty and staff and students, but also the people who are supporting the university in whatever way, then then you've lost uh, your ability to be able to be competitive. So, so you mentioned on, in the, the things you chose to highlight on your card, 
but but you also uh, in in your book on land grant universities you really make the case that some of the things that need to change in our our large our our flagship universities are the balance of research versus a real focus on the students and teaching and yeah. then and then also talking about silos and and bureaucracy and trying to 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 encourage cross disciplinary collaboration problem solving could you give an example or two of how how have you tried to put that vision in practice at at, at West Virginia or the other universities you've Yeah played? I I um so let me just say I'm, a, I'm, I'm an educational radical in many ways. Um, I believe that um, I believe that universities are structured in the wrong way. I think we're structured vertically. We should be structured horizontally. And by that, I mean that uh, we have put up uh, silos and spires instead of uh, developing really cross-fertilization. I think... I think two things. When I, 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 I think that there is a tyranny of the department. I think departments uh, tend to be very, to be very inward looking and do not think about how they can uh, structure themselves to be part of a university. I think that colleges are the same way. There's a tyranny of the college. There's a tyranny of gerontocracy also. Old people should be running universities. Young people should because they think much differently about it. So if I were king for a day, I would do away with colleges and departments, create centers, institutes, and working groups, and really have a, a, a really create a whole new way for us to organize uh, uh, ourselves, organize ourselves around the way we think and the way that our brain works rather than the way that uh, we were established in Bologna in the year 1200. Um, number one. Number two is that I think that uh, we have developed a very skewed, uh, a very skewed um, reward structure. You know, teaching, uh, research, and service have been kind of the the three platitudes that we use. But the truth of the matter is, we all know that, that research is what counts. Teaching gets very little uh, deference, and and service is almost a detriment. Uh, we've got to really develop uh, reward structures that uh, that have multiple roads to salvation. You know, in my own English department, if I have faculty who love to teach, I want to reward them and pay them and give them tenure and do everything else that they do it well. If I have someone who's going to write the great American novel, let them do it. And if I'm going to have, have a couple of people who shouldn't see students, then let's make use out of them in other ways. But, but the point is, is if we t- tell everyone that they need to be uh, Renaissance people, that they need to be good in all three things, they're not going to be good in anything. There, it's a rarity. If it becomes a rarity that they are that they can do those three things, uh, or however we want to, to structure it, then then we have found a genius that we ought to uh, make sure we try to replicate. But that is just not the case. And so what we really do is we really create uh, we really create uh, a very um, very destructive uh, cultures in universities. Uh, we bring young people in. The example, we bring young people into a large institution like ours, and the reason they come here is the fact that we have a huge medical center. We have all these programs in agriculture and in engineering, and uh, and they're young philosophy professors. So they say, well, gee, I, I, I want to lay down with, uh, with the physicians uh, like, uh, 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 like Lance instead of like Lyons, but, and, they, and I want to do work with the uh, with these people in the medical center as an example. 
And that's all well and good until they beat the, the 65-year-old white guy who has been there forever still using the same uh, yellow pages from, from his lecture. And they say, that's all well and good, but if you don't do it my way, you're not going to get tenure. We, we, we beat the hell out of our young faculty based upon history and tradition rather than based upon common values and common sense. Well, I mean, I absolutely agree with your diagnosis, but I'm curious, you know, having been at a large place like Rutgers um, and USC, I, I know those are not institutions that are are easy to change quickly. And you said if you were king of, for a day, obviously you, you don't get those kingly powers, but how have you gone about trying to to change the way the things yeah. operate to, to, to align with that? Well, I, you know, a couple of things when we're going through what I call a process of transformation right now. And what we're really looking at is this, is the fact that we've got to, we've got to, we've got to eliminate, we've got to consolidate, we've got to invest. And we've got to take a look at it in, in, in the cold light of day. I mean, there are some programs in this institution that are just not meeting the quality of the institution. Or there are not enough students who are interested, or a variety of other things. Now, there are certain things like English and mathematics. You've always got to have real greatness there because those are the fundamental building blocks of the university. But a lot of the other things that we start spinning out um, are just not essential to uh, what we're trying to achieve. And so we need to be uh, be willing to take a look at that. Um, secondly of all, uh, and, and so we need to both be able to eliminate and be able to... Um, to uh, invest, and I and I tell everyone, I'm not doing this to save money or to do any other thing. Uh, uh, every university should have the aspiration to get better, but to get better across a number of fields, not simply to um, to increase its NIH numbers or its NSF numbers. It's ought to be about graduation rates. It's ought to be about retention rates. It ought to be about community service. It ought to be about building. Um, structures and functions in terms of state government, all of those kinds of issues. And so, um, so, the, so the second thing is that we, that we really are attacking the issue of how do we reward and recognize our faculty. We have been very wise. We've created uh, service professors. We have created research professors. We've created teaching professors. You know, as an R1 institution, I often point out to our faculty the reason we're in our one institution is the fact that we have a, a significant number of faculty who teach and teach well and are rewarded for doing so as teaching assistant or associate professors that allow others to do their work in terms of the research they're doing. And so it's that it's that mosaic of collaboration. So those are the those are the things we're trying to do now. We're and, and then we're going to remass and by that tra- transformation process, remassing, you know, we have too many small units. We're consolidating a couple of our colleges right now. Uh, we're we're taking a look at consolidating a number of our uh, of our programs so that we have enough mass. Uh, I, I, I point. I was pointing out to someone just the other day at Ohio State, big institution. We had uh, we had a lot of programs in biology, but some of them were in agriculture, some of them were medicine. You know this from Rutgers. Some of them were in the undergraduate level, yeah. and none of them were distinguished. I mean, if I'm if I'm really honest about it, and and so one day um, came up with the bright idea: why don't we just combine them all? Uh, because we had had a review that said, you know, your 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 biology programs are not very good. So 
So we combined them all. We didn't add anyone. Didn't even add much money. But all of a sudden, our biology programs became became very distinguished because of the fact that we had the right mass, right. and and we weren't competing with each other. We were we were actually uh, operating as one university, and I think that that is so critical. At most of the um, institutions where you've led, you you've stayed for around five to six years. Right. It, have you come to see is do you see that as kind of the ideal tenure? for a university president, or was that more a case of circumstance? I think it's a little bit of both, but I tell you this, if you're doing the kind of work you should be doing, your friends come and go and your enemies accumulate. I think it takes about five or six years for about 51% of them to accumulate, which means it's time to move on. And, uh, you know, just as, uh, and besides, you know, universities need to be, you know, need to be refreshed. Um, uh, And, and, and people, people need to feel that they are excited about their leaders and um, they need to feel uh, energized by the ideas that are being generated. And, and you need to also see one of the things that I think that as a university leader, you can do one of two things. One is the fact that you can constantly reinvent yourself in one institution or you can move uh, among several institutions and then reinvent yourself because of the need for these of that particular institution. In my instance, I have done the latter, although coming back, uh, serving two institutions twice, I had to think when I came back to West Virginia some 40 years later, I had to think about this university as dramatically different than the institution that I served. So I had to kind of de-learn to relearn. And the same thing at Ohio State, although it was 10 years between my my last service at Ohio State and my new service there. And, and I'm curious, one of the things that you've known for being particularly successful is, is with fundraising. Typically, the, the length and the timing of a university campaign wouldn't quite coincide with that sort of length of time. So how have you thought about that aspect of it, of, of, of campaigns yeah. when it relates to your fundraising? Well, you know, I always try to align myself uh, to make certain that uh, our fundraising efforts are very focused on... Um, on, on immediate success, you know, uh, you know, uh, campaigns are sort of an oxymoron in a sense, uh, because you and I both know we're, we're campaigning every day and, and, and to say, well, we completed that. We've completed a campaign campaign. We've raised $2 billion and aren't we successful? The truth of the matter is, is the next day you got to get out and start raising again because that's the mother's milk of the university. So I, I, I tend to think that campaigns are, uh, Campaigns need to be focused, if you're going to use those, on very people-centered programs. Right now, a lot of our institutions need to be very focused on supporting students uh, in a number of different ways, particularly in terms of scholarship and financial aid. Uh, We need to be supportive of faculty in certain numbers of ways. And so I tend to think about uh, fundraising as more more discreet, but I also tend to think about it the same way that I think about... um, about strategic planning, I think that uh, you see you see an opportunity, you read something, you hear something, you run into someone, and you say, "Hey, look, uh, uh, you just happen to have some extra cash, a couple of hundred million dollars. Um, why don't we create a? Let uh, me help you put it to use. Yeah, yeah, why why don't we help you put it to use and and make old Siwash great? You know. So I think that I think you need to be very um, I think you need to be very focused on the moment as well as constantly looking over the 
over the horizon to see what opportunities are going to arise. And you just need to cultivate, you know, cultivate all the time. Uh, you, you, you know, I, I spend a great deal of my time sending out uh, messages to people about things that I've seen, uh, 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 keeping conversations going, a variety of other things. I think that that's part of our jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, abs- absolutely. So you've obviously, you've spent the vast majority of your career and, and you seem really devoted to the, the land-grant university mission. Um, the, the one exception along that tenure was was sort of your 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 couple of years at Brown. What led you to go there and and choose that role? And and oh. then it sounded like you fairly quickly decided that was wasn't the right place. Well, you know, it's a wonderful institution. Yeah. Um, one of the great institutions in this country. Uh, very quirky in many ways, as you know, because it's it's even unique among the Ivy League institutions. Um, let students uh, take whatever they want, yeah, right? No absolutely. major stuff. Absolutely. You know, it's a no major major. And, um, and, 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 you know, the board hired me coming from 65,000. I, I, you know, it's funny. I came from 65,000 students to 6,500. And uh, the board hired me because they said, you know, we'd like to have you come in. You've done all these kind of interesting things at Ohio State. Come in and change changes. Help us to change. Well, you know, what I discovered was the fact that, uh, they didn't want to change, and 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 this is not meant to be negative at all. Because I am a great admirer of Brown University. I probably learned as much about uh, about the dynamics of academic life there as any place that I've been. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, I point out, uh, David, that uh, I was always used used to when I'd have a faculty meeting that we'd have a faculty senate, 60, 70 senators would show up. We'd have a good and healthy discussion. So I called my first faculty meeting at Brown, and every every damn one member, every damn member of the faculty showed up. All of a sudden, I realized there was no one between me and them. You know, you're in a small institution. You know that you are uh, you're neither fish nor fowl. You know, and it was it was a shock to my system. It was probably a shock to theirs too. But but uh, uh, but uh, uh, so what I learned there was that uh, was that. Uh, the, the politics of higher education, which are in any institution, that the smaller the, po- the smaller the institution, the more intense the politics. You would think that that would be absolutely different. But at the big university, uh, things are so dispersed and uh, opportunities move among things. There's, there are deans and associate deans and a variety of other folks. So you have a chance to be, I think, a little bit more strategic and thoughtful about how you manage things. You are right on the firing line. Um, the other thing is this, is that uh, both at Brown and Vanderbilt and two institutions that I must say that, um, you know, I enjoyed my time. I, I, I had particular affection for, uh, for, for Vanderbilt. I just thought it was a fabulous university and uh, felt very strongly about uh, my seven years there in terms of uh, what we accomplished. But I would wake up in the morning uh, and I'd say, you know, I'm very blessed to be here at Brown and Vanderbilt. We have lots of resources. We have no constraints. We can we can charge tuition at any level we want to. You know, parents will sell their first child to get their second child in. You know, it's, a, it's this kind of a thing. But but then I mean, I actually looked at myself and I said, but I don't know why I'm here. I mean, this institution can run without me. Right. Um, and then, uh, but at the great public university, in particular, the great land-grant institutions, when you wake up in the morning, you know why you were there. Mm-hmm. 
you have an immense responsibility to your university family, but also to the greater family of the state and even to the nation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, As far as I know, you're the only person who has returned to two different flagship public universities to lead them a second time. Right, so I'm really, I'm really curious how that experience differed. How did you find the second time at Ohio State or now at West Virginia compared to the first time around? Well, as I said, I think the first thing I had to learn was to, was to de-learn the institution the way that I remembered it. I think, secondly, while I had a lot more confidence, I, I kind of knew the structure and function. I understood the the people. I you know a lot of the people here, who are now in powerful positions, graduated from the law school when I taught them here. For as an example, uh, you know in in Ohio it was there were just a lot of people that I knew, uh, so I could kind of get back into the into the rhythm of the institution very quickly. I think that what you find out though is that uh, you really made some dumb mistakes the first time around. And that uh, you have a chance to to really rethink um, the nature of that institution in a much more thoughtful way than when you're just fresh, um, and you can ask uh, very defining questions, and you already know where the strengths and weaknesses are, and where you need to put your initial bets, and where you need to make um, some strategic decisions. Can you give an example or two of that from Ohio State? Sure. What were the things you applied sure. there that second time? Sure, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you an example. Ohio State was uh, was on the quarter system, and Ohio State had five colleges of arts and science. You know, the humanities, the social sciences, and that. And it was. Uh, and so when I came back, first thing I said, we're going to move from quarters to semesters because we're going to get lined up with the rest of the human race. And the second thing is that is that we can't have all of these various iterations of colleges of arts and science. We need to have one college of arts and science, no matter if it's big, and then we then we need to have schools for colleges within it. But we cannot we cannot be we cannot have this kind of competitive uh, uh, knockdown, drag out, and hand to hand combat among those colleges because it's destructive to the success of the institution. So those are those are two things that I did almost immediately, um, and you can imagine both of those were not easy. Yeah. The, the the other thing the other thing that I did was the fact that I decided that I was going to start asking this question that I'd never really asked before, and that is, what is what is the role of the university? And and so I had said so at Ohio State I said well you know the role of our institution is the, and 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 our core mission the core mission is to is faculty, staff, and students, um, uh, you know, teaching and research and, and 11.6 million Ohioans. And, and then I said, well, then why in heck's sake are we in the, uh, are we in the parking business? Or why are we in the residence hall business and a variety of other things? Well, you know, and so I decided that I would privatize parking. I mean, you would have thought that I had uh, declared war and I, you know, I mean, the placards, he's, he's private, he's, he's corporatizing the university, right? Well, you know, I stay, uh, held to my guns. And um, so we privatized, well, he didn't sell it, we privatized, got a half billion dollars, $500 million in cash. 
And then we got another uh, half billion because we then took that and went into the markets and got a uh, got a century bond. So within about three months, we produced a billion dollars. All of that went into the academic uh, programs. The second thing, of course, was the fact that they said, well, you know, you're going to privatize this and 70 people are going to lose their job. Oh, I said, look, there's 70 people in parking. We'll give them a choice. They can either stay with the university or they can go to the new parking authority. Guess what? Every one of them went to their parking authority because they doubled their salary and they and they gave them better benefits. Let's not get caught up in the kind of silliness and lemming approach to how we think about uh, how we think about university. We've got to we've got to be willing to explore all ideas and just because of the fact that it is not uh, done that way. I, funny, I've been watching um, for the last couple of nights just because I thought it was kind of fun. I've been watching on Netflix a show called The Chair. Yes. And and I, I mean, you know, uh, even though it's sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek, and right, there is too much truth to it. That's what well, that, that – and, and that is particularly close to home because do you know where The Chair was filmed? No, where? Chatham University. Well, it's a beautiful campus, my friend. Sandra O oh took over my office for five weeks last February. You're kidding. Well, good no. for you. I, I mean, I mean, I would urge everyone to take a look at it because, because you know, it, it was meant to be kind of satirical, uh, tongue-in-cheek. The truth of the matter is, it is more truthful than not. Mm-hmm. We need to learn as university leaders and faculty and staff need to start looking in the damn rear, in, in the damn mirror, and not through the rearview mirror, and say, "This is who we are," and we are really looking kind of silly. Uh, you, you, you know, and uh, as long as I'm letting loose on these things, I'll say, I, 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 so, so I've got a second book coming out called What is Public About the Public Universities that Johns Hopkins Press is publishing. And, and, and the, the premise of it is this, is when I became a university president in 1980, 95% of the American public thought higher education was an important good. Now it's below 50%. And the question is why? Particularly when universities have never been more important in the in the body politic of this country, it's a, we are the economic engines. Well, the answer is, is the fact that we have uh, we have engaged in silly internal uh, debates. I, I mean, you know, I hate to say this, but uh, well, I don't hate to say it. I, I mean, I think that we, many of us have lost our right to call ourselves universities. Anytime universities are not places in which we should make people feel comfortable. These are places in which uh, we're about education, we're about good ideas, bad ideas, irritating ideas, irrational ideas, offensive ideas. And the minute that we start canceling, the minute we start trigger warnings, the minute we start all this other kind of uh, of, of ex- uh, uh, ancillary activities to the core mission of the university, which is education, we lose public support because they because they look at it and say, these people are on another planet. And that's what we have to start dealing with. Yeah. One of the things that I was very envious, I saw you, you'd started um, recently at West Virginia was with, with a $25 million gift from the Intuit CEO, Brad Smith, was Ascend West Virginia. Um, this is a time with COVID and, and the mobility of this generation where people are much more able to, to pick where they want to work rather than 
driven just by the job. I'm curious, how has that effort been going? It's it's an issue we focus on a lot in Pittsburgh, you know, in terms of thinking about how do we continue to reshape the economy? Yeah, uh, you know, if you take a look at every survey, um, at least the vast majority of them, people are tired of living in the vertical cities. They want to move horizontally. They want to have, and particularly this new generation, the millennial and the Z generation, um, they want to build communities. They want to have a high quality of life, a variety of other things. And guess what we learned? We learned you don't need to you don't need to go uh, uh, to your office building in the high rise in New York. You can actually do things remotely and be very effective at it. In fact, our own our own efficiency rate is up uh, while we have been remote in many ways. And um, and so um, so we decided because West Virginia is one of those states that has been losing population. That we that we wanted to really try to reinvent the state uh, by attracting new and interesting and young people here. So uh, thanks to Brad and Elise Smith, we started this the same program. Um, to give you an example, we we picked three we picked three sites: uh, Morgantown, West Virginia, um, Shepherdstown, which is in the Eastern Panhandle, beautiful part of the state, and another beautiful part of the state around the Greenbrier called Lewisburg. Um, and we, we, we said, we'll pay you $12,600 to come. We'll give you outdoor recreation passes, a variety of other things. We'll help you find housing. Um, so we opened up our first site at Morgantown. We got 8,000 applications in the first 24 hours. We've had 440,000 hits and requests for applications. And we've had 2.2 billion uh, people looking at what we're doing uh, hits. So uh, yeah, it's going to be it, it, it's the kind of thing that that I believe that universities should be doing. Universities should be creative forces and and energetic forces for uh, for developing um, uh, the quality of life of the people that they serve, and not simply be isolated and arrogant. And beyond the actual people who get the award to come that you're giving out. Do you have a way to track how many of yes. those others are actually coming to the state? Yes, we have. We, we have a no package. Gee, we're so sorry that we didn't give you the money, but guess what? We're going to give you other uh, good. And so as it's like at Chatham or like at West Virginia, you know, not everyone's going to get a scholarship. Sure. But we're going, but we're going to recruit every damn one of those people. Yeah. And so we're reaching out to them uh, with other kinds of enticements, with other kinds of options, with other reasons for them to come. So. So the answer is that um, it's uh, it's it's proven to be very successful for us. But we build it around outdoor uh, recreation. Now, one of the things that people think about is West Virginia is an energy state, coal. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is after we've done all these surveys, um, West Virginia has more outdoor recreation facilities, climbing, quite water rafting, uh, trails, et cetera, than does North Carolina or Colorado. And we're in the Eastern Time Zone, and we're within driving distance of two thirds of the American public. So let's take advantage of that. A beautiful state, uh, low cost of living, high quality of life, um, and it's. Uh, I think it's going to be a very successful program. That's great, and as I say, very very envious here in Pittsburgh. I yeah. I also was of of your previous track record at Ohio State. I was really stunned visiting Columbus last weekend to learn that it had added a hundred thousand people since the last census. 
Yeah. Um, you know, passing Cleveland as the largest metro area in Ohio. I mean, that's a, a real testament to the power the universities can have in, yeah. in a growth of an area. Yeah. And the university has been very central in that, you know, a big, a big university in a big city. But um, one of the things we did at Ohio State that I thought was very important is we took charge of our communities. When I came to Ohio State in 1990, um, uh, I drove in from the President's residence, which was in another, which was in community called Beckley. I drove into the university and I'd been recruited by being brought brought off in one area. The campus looked quite nice. Well when I drove in I discovered that that it was Fallujah. I mean it was it was awful. What the university had done to suck the life out of that uh, community we've been. You know, our concern is only the four corners of the campus. We have no responsibility for housing, quality of life, community building, any other thing. We, we so we immediately started something called campus partners. You know, twenty years later, um, twenty years later, uh, thirty years later, uh, one of the greatest uh, uh, growth areas in Columbus is around uh, Ohio State University because the fact that the university took responsibility for building a community. Mm. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, in your new book, um, I'm guessing you're you're going to touch on many of the trends that are are sort of really transforming higher ed. I, I was wondering if if you could speak to a few of those. Um, one is is the growth of the the really mega universities. The what Arizona State is trying to do, Western Governors, Southern New Hampshire. How do you see um, these and other new entrants to it? You know. Google offering courses and others shaping the, the education market. I think I think that higher education in its uh, in its present format is uh, is going to change rather dramatically. I think that uh, I think what we have right now is we have three kinds of institutions. We have those institutions that uh, have outrun their coverage, mainly small tuition driven institutions. Uh, and many of them are not going to survive. There are 4,500 colleges and universities in this country. Uh, 500 to 1,000 of them may close over the next uh, three or four years. Then the second kind of institution you have are what I call the blue or the red ocean universities. These are the ones who decide that they want to return to normal. They're going to hang on to the sides of the, uh, of the uh, you know, of, of uh of the peer, they're going to stay right there. They're all going to be clustered together. They're going to be gnawing and uh, pushing and fighting at each other. You know, a lot of blood in the water. Then there are going to be a few institutions that are the blue ocean institutions. Those are the ones that are going to differentiate themselves. I think what Paula Bonk has done, I think what Michael Crow has done, I think that those are the institutions of the future, mainly because, not because of the fact that they've come up with magic elixir, but because of the fact that they decided they were going to be different. They weren't going to follow the old, um, the old line that that institutions uh, need to look alike, and um, and uh, so I think that um, I think that uh, uh, there's not going to be a, a reversion to normal. I don't even think there's going to be a new normal. I think that the only normal that's going to be is the next normal, and I think that those institutions that are brave enough and wise enough to really differentiate themselves and to discover what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, where they find themselves. We're in West Virginia in a beautiful part of the country. We're in a rural state. Let's play to those strengths and find out the things that we can do well. And then we will, uh, and then we will grow ourselves into that blue ocean. Yeah. 
there there have been past predictions. You know, Clay Christensen was one prominent one about the the closure of a large number of institutions, and and certainly there are a lot of headwinds, but. A lot of the small privates have proved remarkably resilient through a lot have. of these challenging times. So I'm curious, what what is it that you think is going to really precipitate the, the the dramatic closure of many more in the next decade? Well, I think I think it's because of the fact that uh, that uh, particularly this generation and families are becoming very cost conscious. Um, you know, um, why uh, why would we charge? Uh, you know. Why would we pay fifty thousand dollars for a limited experience when you can go um, online or uh, have a more have a more robust collegiate experience in a, in a larger institution? I think that those I think those are the challenges. I think that those are the challenges for any smaller institution. I think, that, but a number of institutions. You know, one of the things is is as you say, there's a robust uh, nature to universities because many of them, and you're and, and you just told me that. Um, at Chatham, that you have your largest class ever uh, in terms of freshmen. Um, so, so the question is going to be for in terms of discounting and a number of other things. How how long how long institutions without huge endowments are going to be able to sustain that? I think that's going to be the, the challenge that you have. Yeah, and I think obviously with the particularly in the Northeast Midwest, the declining number of high school graduates that Nathan Graw has written about, you know, is 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 is, is a f- trend that we're all seeing as going to worsen these trends that we've been seeing. Oh, yeah. Around. You know, the, yeah. uh, in, in, um, in 26, we're going to have a cliff. Yeah. Um, and it will slowly build itself back up, but, but we're all looking to, into an abyss here in a few years. In terms of numbers, I'm talking about. Yeah. What role do you see for things below a degree qualifications? We've seen oh. institutes like boot camps, guild education, others. Do you see that as being very significant as we go forward? Absolutely. I think that we've got to start thinking about stackable degrees. We've got to start thinking about certification. We've got to start thinking about other things, other things that we haven't thought about before. You know, one of the things, David, that I have really come to realize is the fact that we need to think about education as an ecological system. It's a continuum, pre-K through life. Now, not everyone should come to Chatham and not everyone should come to Western University, but everyone should continue to have some educational experience. Whether you want to be, uh, whether you want to be a doctor or whether you want to be um, in the construction business, there's a learning cycle we need to have. And so we need to start thinking about, about ourselves, not as granting degrees so much as granting opportunities and thinking about this whole notion of life as a continuum and 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 that that people will have a chance to um, continue to refresh themselves and we ought to we ought to qualify that we ought to give them a chance and 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 we ought to uh, we ought to look at that as a real opportunity we've got to start becoming great um, uh, We've got to start having great collaborations with our community college partners. Um, we've got to start creating partnerships among a, a number of institutions. I remember when I was at Vanderbilt, when uh, I created this this relationship, because Vanderbilt was a small institution, about eleven thousand, but it had uh, it had some really very distinguished programs in engineering, medicine, a variety of other things. And so I, I reached out to a number of the small. Um, Institution Rhodes College, Davidson, 
Birmingham Southern, and said, okay, I tell you what, we're doing world great. Uh, you go, uh, your students go to your place for three years, then come to us for two years, and they can get an engineering degree, or they can get an early, um, they can get early admissions to medical school, right? It's that kind of, uh, we have been too competitive and not enough collaborative and partnerships. If you were to ask me one word that I think may define the next uh, 10 years or so, it's going to be partnerships. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, one thing that a lot of other sectors that have been more mature have done is, is consolidation and partnership um, in ways to leverage resources. And we've seen, I think, remarkably little of that in higher ed, considering, you know, how long the sector has been. I'm curious, you've touched on it slightly, but but are there key lessons you've taken away from the last 18 months during the pandemic that you think will be lasting changes for how, how West Virginia or other universities operate? I think the first thing is I, is I uh, don't want to have this as another experience again, if you know what I mean. I, I, I sure I, do. I, you yeah. know, in, in 41 years, I've had, you know, I've had my office taken over. I've had uh, people... Um, uh, doing crazy stuff. I've had all sorts of uh, problems and opportunities, but I've never had a pandemic. And so it's been, I feel like a small boy walking a picket fence. I'm thrilled, but in danger of being impaled. Number Great. one. And number two is that I think that, um, I think what we're going to have to learn to do is we're going to have to learn, excuse me, Dave, we're going to have to learn to dance. And by that, I mean, we can't continue to have this yo-yo effect of shutting down uh, starting back up and doing all this other kind of stuff, we're going to have to have enough confidence now that we do have um, vaccines and a variety of other things that as we're dealing with these issues, we've got to think about it as a dance. You know, sometimes we're going to have to tap dance. Sometimes we're going to have to, we're going to have to do the uh, foxtrot or the waltz, but, but we've got to start having a more steady approach uh, rather than the, um, than the really uh, dramatic hurt, a closure, herky-jerky approach that we've had. Universities need to be seen as stable, not instability, uh, not instable and creating instability. And the third thing is the fact that there's a whole new way to teach. There's a, no, a whole new way to learn. And there's a whole different group of people who have different approaches to this, and we ought to be able to welcome and nurture all of those. Great. Um, I'm curious, as, as you look back on... on your life and, and your, your tenure as, as president, what, what do you think are the experiences that most prepared you to be successful as a university leader? And I'm curious in particular, two of your early experiences. One, I think you were very active in the scouts, um, yes. uh, being an Eagle Scout, and, and obviously that puts a big uh, uh, emphasis on being uh, someone who is resilient and a survivor. And then also, I believe your expertise within the law you looked at higher education law, and I'm curious how that has served you uh, in your many tenures as president. Uh, I think both of them. I'm still, uh, I'm on the executive committee of the National Boy Scouts. You know, they've been through a terrible time with the bankruptcy, et cetera. They're coming out at the other end. I think that, I think for me, it's been a great experience to learn about mistakes made, a variety of other things, you know. There have been a lot of institutions that have had to deal with that, the Catholic Church and others, and I think that, uh, I think that, being on the inside of this, I have learned a great deal about uh, about the construct of large organizations and uh, and the responsibility that large organizations have to the individual. Um, 
And uh, you, you know, I I think that uh, I think that probably the best advice that <clears throat> I can give anyone is that there's kind of three things that I think are are kind of in the ingredients for success. Number one is I think you need to have a very thick skin. I'll just say that again. You know, everyone everyone knows how to run the university better than you do. Uh, in social media times, uh, everyone's going to comment on you. If you if you read them, don't. And and if you believe them, uh, don't believe them either. Uh, don't uh, don't overreact. Secondly, well, and I think that maybe this is the most important thing. I think that I think that as a university leader, you need to have a good sense of humor. Uh, if you can't laugh at yourself, if you can't see things that are funny in day to day activities, if you can't um, have a good time um, enjoying the moments, uh, then I think that you uh, will never last in these kind of jobs. And the third thing is you need to understand that you understand that, that you know better about decision making than anyone who is complaining to you because you have all the facts. And once you make a decision, don't read the polls, don't listen to all the stuff that's coming up over the transom, don't do any of that kind of stuff because if you do, you're going to become catatonic very quickly, you know, have nerves like sewer pipes. Yeah. And I think that that's very important. And as you think about those attributes, have you seen the role of being a university president? Has it changed a lot over your four decades? Oh, yeah, uh, dramatically. Uh, it used to be your sort of, uh, uh, you know, Mark Hopkins on a log and, uh, and you kind of had an easy life. I can remember my first time here. I used to actually have, take off time to have lunch with people. Uh, you, you know, I mean, it, it, it has become 24-7, um, seven days a week. It's become intense. It's become um, many times uh, very, uh, very pugilistic, I think, all of those issues. On the other hand, I think that there's no doubt about it that uh, the role of university president has grown in importance if you take it as that responsibility that we talked about. I frankly think that one of the problems that we faced, uh, David, is the fact that uh, not a lot of people are as as enthusiastic about becoming university presidents as they used to be. They see the difficulties and the strains on family, a variety of other things. And all too often, uh, university presidents, given the way that we search for presidents now, they are generally the people who've offended the fewest number of people the longest period of time. And so what that really means is the fact that they are sort of gray ghosts and not necessarily uh, people who are going to uh, stimulate and create and move forward. Um, it's about holding a job, not creating an opportunity. And I think that I think that we need to provide a whole new way for really creative people to get into this work. You obviously have all three of those characteristics you mentioned of successful presidents in in great measure. Are, are there things you've recognized about yourself that you see as as gaps that you have figured out yeah. a way to compensate for in your leadership? Yeah, number one thing is that uh, to figure out what your gaps are, be very uh, be very um, bold about sitting down, get a yellow. You know, we lawyers do this, get a yellow piece of paper and say, these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses. Um, and uh, and then appoint people who fill your gaps. 
you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I tell everyone, I'm not a great finance guy. I understand it, but I, I don't like it very much. But boy, I tell you, I've had great CFOs who've kept the university out of the ditch. Uh, and uh, there are so many other gaps in my, in my abilities. But if you're wise enough to build, uh, to, to create a mosaic of leadership, brother, you know, at, um, at Ohio State, the first time around, I hired, I hired a wonderful guy who was, but he was just like me. And we had the best time. We loved each other. And um, we would have dinner all the time and the trains didn't run on time. Next time I hired a provost for Ohio State, the second time around, I hired someone. We would meet for 10 minutes a week. The business would get done. Um, he filled my gaps and we had a much more successful tenure. So I think that those are the learning experiences. If, if you don't mind, I, I wanted to ask you one personal question. Um, mm-hmm. Your story reminds me a lot. The very first person I interviewed for the podcast was John Sexton at New York University, uh, a similarly very bold thinker, really sees the, the broader mission of the university. But one of the things that you and John shared is, is you both lost your wives to cancer in the midst of the presidency. And, right. and knowing how all-consuming a job it is. I, I'm just trying to to understand how how did you how were you able to persevere through the role in, in, in the midst of that. Well, I was very blessed. First of all, um, I uh, Elizabeth, my wife, prepared me for it. She wrote a wonderful book called "The Light The, the Light Before the Dark," and uh, it really talked about um, about what she was going through, but also encouraging me to think about. Um, about the fact that she was leaving me with a, with a 15-year-old daughter, only child adopted. And, um, and so uh, I, she was a very brave woman and, uh, and gave me a lot of courage. Secondly of all, I had this wonderful daughter. And, and you know, um, I, I, a lot of people think, gosh, you know, you have a 15-year-old. Uh, it's, uh, my daughter just pitched in. She was my partner and she was my friend and remains that to this day. And I think that, um, I think that having a family that surrounds you and loves you in this instance, I had my daughter, but I also had my sister and my brother-in-law who would come and spend time with us and uh, do a variety of other things. Um, and the other thing is the fact that I learned that I needed to, um, have, um, that I needed to, make time in my life for my family. Um, I'm a workaholic, as are you, as are all of us in these roles, but I did take time. So I, I, I used to get really irritated. So I, here I am, the president of one of the largest university in the country, and I make every one of my daughter's uh, basketball games. And I'd hear other, uh, and I was the only parent there. And most other parents were saying, well, gee, you know, I don't have time. Well, if I had time, they had time too. So I think that I think that there are some learning experiences that we can all gain from each other by just the management of your own time and what is important in your life. So, so as far as I can tell in, in, in reading on your career, the, the only thing you've failed so far at is, is retirement. So <laughs> have, have, you, have you thought at all about wh- how you what the next yeah, phase of life yeah, looks I, like? And have you done anything to prepare for that? I, I think but two things. One is yes. And secondly of all, I think that, uh, and I'm thinking about it seriously, I will not retire, but I will retire from the presidency. Um, 
I want to remain very active. And so I'm thinking about some of the different kinds of things. My friend John Sexton is very much the same way, you know, uh, keep taking on different kinds of roles. And you know, one of the one of the advantages that I have, which you're giving me today, David, for which I'm grateful, is the fact that uh, over uh, 40 years, I've gained a lot of wisdom and I've made a lot of mistakes. And if nothing else, I'd love to share those with people. So, I'm th- uh, so, so there, there, are, there are all sorts, all sorts of opportunities. And my goal, my goal is to, you know, was to be the youngest university president in the country. Now it's to be the oldest university president in the well, country. And it's not many who can claim both. So, yeah, so Gordon, thank you so sure. much for ta- taking taking so much of your time. It, it's been a real delight to speak yeah. with you, uh, uh, and wish you all of the very best with this new yeah. academic year we're both starting on. Yeah, and thank you. And you know, you're just a wonderful interviewer. Uh, if 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 this presidency business gets uh, irritating, try this for a gig, my friend. Okay, have <laughs> a wonderful day, much. David. Thank you.